You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. It's race week, Bracken. It's race week for Bracken Cracker. How you feeling? Very confused. <laughs> I feel excited, though. <laughs> Isn't that how you walk through life normally? Yeah. Yeah, maybe more confused than usual. I'm specifically confused. It's usually a general state of confusion, but I have specific confusing confounding factors for this race uh-huh. week. all right and we haven't talked about this yet so i'm interested and keen to hear what the confusion is about i don't know well, can i actually stop you can i st- sorry i'm gonna stop real quick um okay sometimes you slow me down you and made I'm it just, really far yeah, <laughs> minute and 10 or less um you stop me sometimes when i start to tell a story or you you set the stage so to speak yeah. And maybe just to remind everybody, uh, and maybe for those who are newer tuning in, Bracken's had a heck of a three years. More specifically, some knee surgeries here on the meniscus. Uh, I had a hernia surgery, what, a year ago? Your meniscus have both been mm-hmm. fixed up and patched, and you're finally back to training. Um, with purpose, we will call it. You got back into it, and then you had a quad issue pop up. So you've only been running on flat mm-hmm. ground or real terrain here for the last two weeks and not very much at that. Yeah. Bracken has not run a race since, was it this time last year? You ran this exact same race as a doubles with Cali, or was that two years ago? Correct. Two years ago. One year ago. One year, one year ago this week. Okay, so yeah. for all intents and purposes, Bracken has not raced, put on his athlete cap, when running is involved for one year ish, let's say, and it's finally happening again. Yeah, and it was actually January. It was earlier, so it's over a year. Over a year. I had not raced since July. I had run a trail race, and then my first race back was January, about seven months. And that felt like a while, and I had not gone through major surgery or injury. So, anyways, to set the stage, this is a big deal. It's race week. You're getting out there, so. Now you can tell me about your confusion. Well, it's a big deal in the smallest possible way. It's a big deal for me. It's a small deal in the grand scheme of things because it's it's not the primary focus race of the weekend. There is the pro individual wave, which is the North American Championship wave for High Rocks. And this is the doubles male wave. So that shares the B tier status with three other races. So it's a very small stage. There's nothing on the line there's no money on the line. There's, there's no anything. It's just a big deal for me because it's been almost 13 months since I've run a race. I'm glad you set the the stage that way. And I will tell you that last weekend I went to the SoCal Spartan random race weekend, which meant less than the high rocks, North Mm -hmm. American doubles championship. And it felt important for me and it's not silly yeah, for 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 it to be a big deal because it's sort of symbolic or ceremonious in a sense where we're dipping your, our toes back into the water and that's substantial. So, um, 
confuse away. Yeah, it's a big deal to me, and so it's a big deal. Yeah, exactly. That's my reality is that my body recognizes race week and is very affected by that. But what what I don't I, I don't know what's real and what's not right now because my frame of reference is very skewed now. So I had my first knee surgery in 2019. So I've had a surgery a year for 2019, 20, 21, is that correct? Or 20, 21, 22. You had three major surgeries in like two years, two or three year span. You've had three major surgeries. Two major, one minor. And uh, prior to that, I had a string of non-surgical injuries. And in between there, I've had two other injuries as well. I tore a calf to the point where I couldn't run for, I believe, seven weeks. And then I had the quadricep tendinopathy recently where I didn't run a step um, for nine weeks. I did power hiking during that and I did ski erg and then some rowing eventually. And then since then, I spent the next five weeks where I've run below uh, 6% incline five times and outside three times, one of which was for a total of four minutes and 58 seconds. Mm -hmm. So that's like, this sounds like excuses, but again, setting the stage for, I don't really have any concept right now of what an uninterrupted training block looks like. I don't have any concept of race fitness because I haven't raced more than five times in the last four years. And those those races were all done on abbreviated buildups after surgeries. Yeah. So... Everything I thought I knew about myself and what I needed to do to be ready for a race and my fitness is really gone. Like four or five years ago was the last time I had a block like that. And so all I can do is remember the way I felt for any of those races with what I did leading up to it. And the most recent one was 13 months ago. And it was the race I did the same race doubles with Cali on day 11 of COVID. And so I remember how horrendous that felt, but I can't separate the COVID from the fitness. Right. Okay. Well, that sets the entire stage now. So what do you specifically... I have two questions. Right. One, how many times are you going to the bathroom a day as the nerves surmount? And then two, do you have to leave right now, now that we're talking about it? Do you get the, do you feel the pressure down there? No. No, I don't. I don't have any race nerves right now. I think this is going to be a very nerve-free experience. Okay, good. And then what you're confused about. Let's talk it through specifically. All right. So, no, I don't have race nerves. I think this will feel like a fun partner workout with Rich with that like <laughs> that blade hanging over my neck of you might die because I, I, I fell apart terribly with Callie last year. Anyway, last year I didn't have a lot of fitness built up prior to that, but I had enough I knew I could survive co-ed doubles. But then with COVID, I felt so terrible. I was hanging on. Callie was dropping me on the runs. The stations were Mm -hmm. blowing me up. So this year, I've had nine weeks away from running and five more away from flat running. So I've been building up doing rehab exercises and getting my quality in on machines and through incline work. None of it is a type of quality or progression that I've ever done in my life. And so I don't feel like I have any fitness. And I just remember how terrible that race felt with Kelly, where I blew up one station in and then just was in misery the rest of the time. But I've done three high rock simulation style workouts now, and all three went really well. Hmm. And that is really encouraging, but it's also really worrisome because you know that the race won't go well the whole way through. Going well doesn't mean feeling good. 
Yeah, you're wondering if it's a false sense of security, yeah. which I would feel the same way. What about them is going well? If we could dive into that, like what's going well about these high rocks specific workouts? So I am, I'm setting it up so that I'm doing like the most recent one was I did the first five stations in their entirety on Saturday. So 1000 meter run into a 1000 meter ski erg into 1000 meter run and then sled push run sled pull run burpee broad jumps run row Hmm. and i split it up exactly how rich and i planned to split the work up i got to work when i was supposed to and then i rested for the amount of time it would take him and aired on the side of of less time Mm -hmm. Let's, let's say if we switched on the sled push if i worked for 20 seconds and i thought he'd work for about 20 i did 20 on 15 off at higher than race weight and pushed above the I on all of it I tried to work at or above what I thought I could work on race day to feel what does tipping feel like so I know to stay below that in the race. And I ended up running a workout that was about ten seconds per mile faster on every one of my runs than I thought I'd be able to do. And I skied and rode uh in the mid one forties the whole time. Which for me is very good. So metrics were faster all around. All around. And only one run was tough. That was coming off the burpee broad jumps. That was tough. What uh, what pace were you aiming to run on your runs? This whole time I thought if I can run around six minutes, we'll be okay. And I ended up running about 550 the whole time. Wow. And then when I was on the burpee broad jumps, I was thinking, because I was just going to do the first four stations, do the first half and I'll know. But then I thought our plan is that I start the rower out. And then Rich finishes while I rest up. As the race is caught up with me, I'll get about 90 seconds rest there before I have to work again. And that'll be mm-hmm. good for us. So I thought I really should do the next run and then row to feel what that really feels like coming in off of a run, off the tough run, off the burpee broad jump, and then row at the pace I want to row at. So I did that. And then I decided to hop off the rower and run again just to get that feel of running off the row. And so I did more work in the middle of the work at the end of the workout than I planned, which that and that alone is a good sign Mm -hmm. because usually I'd look for a way out. And then I was able to have a better run off the road than I had off the burpee broad jump. So everything was encouraging (laughs) and, and I didn't expect to have this type of fitness to be for me to be able to row at 145 and then run 550 pace before and after. That's pretty solid fitness for me, but I haven't done things that I would have thought would say you're capable of doing that. So I'm excited for the race, but I still feel like I haven't felt the misery of what High Rocks does feel like, mm-hmm. and that worries me. Well, I feel like a lot of your sessions, some of them have been more grindy in nature, even if they're on different type of equipment, like a, a bike or a hike or whatever. Mm-hmm. You've been doing some like what we would call like, I don't know, like strength type aerobic conditioning right like in in a sense and so yeah that when you're stripped down to it high rocks does kind of put you in that place so you, i'd rather go in working that end of having that solid than just all spicy work and no platform that it was built on and all you've been doing is platform right kind of work or base type work or foundation work is what i really mean and then the other thing is uh <laughs> consider the alternative yeah if you were feeling like a real pud after these workouts, I feel like, yeah, now you're scared, right? Because you're starting to develop expectations a little bit and you're, you're realizing maybe yep. your body is starting to dream. Yep. And, and that's what makes you nervous, but it's much better than the alternative. 
So I'm encouraged for you. For sure. I'm encouraged too. I, I'm almost trying to temper my expectations by by saying, listen, you're going to blow up at some point. So just be ready for that. These workouts are lying to you a little bit. But it, it's interesting to be at a place where I'm going to try to race off of a type of buildup that I've never done before. So I don't know what to build, to look at that. So so then I look back in training and I realize I did nine sessions of running anywhere between two and seven minutes at around half marathon effort at between 10 and 25% incline. Yeah, exactly. Like that, those are decent sessions. I was getting, I was getting 30 ish minutes, 20 to 30, sometimes 40 minutes of quality work at 15 or 20%. So during those sessions, I'm not thinking I'm building towards a race because I was trying to work my conditioning in a way that didn't hurt me, but didn't matter what I was thinking about during the workout. It was still building up in a, a, some tolerance to some, to some lactate and things like that. So like there were workouts in there that, that were beneficial. They just didn't, I wasn't doing them with the intent to get good at running. I was doing them with the intent to not atrophy worse. And, and so it's interesting to go in with one mindset and then come out and realize, huh, maybe it did something other than what I wanted. That's what I'm talking about, Bracken. Back in 2018, I was really sidelined all winter with plantar fasciitis. I've talked about this a couple of times over the years. I went in the entire month of January without running a step, and then I was running twice a week in February, maybe three times in March, and we had a U.S. National Series race in San Jose, San Jose in March and then Seattle in April. And I was just doing exactly what you were doing. I do two hour in quote long runs on the rower going from rower to wall balls to a bucket carry back to the rower onto the bike, like putting in all the time that didn't seem very purposeful. And then when I reintegrated running, Mm -hmm. I had some hiccups. Don't get me wrong along the way. But like when it was time, it was like, shit, I have a foundation and I'm just, it's just, it was like pop, pop, pop. I was like, where is this coming from? And then you look back and you go, well, I was still putting in seven hours a week of aerobic conditioning and I was doing my strength work and I had a foundation, although not specific to what I was going to be racing. And once I gave that stimulus to me, much like you're doing, I was pleasantly surprised. And in fact, I was probably the best at transitioning I ever had been because I was doing so much mixed modality stuff. And so I've experienced that exact same thing. It's been five years since that time period, but I, and, and my fitness popped to another level it hadn't been in a few years prior when I was exclusively running as much as I wanted. And so I'm not saying that's going to happen to you, but yeah. I have experienced that sort of feeling before. Yeah. And I, and I know that it's possible. Now, w- the time I spent doing this is too short to come out higher than I've ever been, but I'm certainly coming out higher than I expected to be. Right. And that's that's really encouraging. I think I told you, but the other day I tried to do that uphill workout, run hard up the hill, uh, to reduce pounding, walk all the way down. And I was feeling really uncomfortable and I didn't like it. And after about 40 minutes, I just ran back to the car and I said, it's mostly flattish trail, just run comfortably hard and see what happens. And every time I looked down, I was between 550 and 620 on this technical trail. And again, that kind of surprised me that that I didn't feel awkward or cumbersome there. So there is something there. There is. And I'm excited to find out exactly what that is. We will. We will. And hey, 
you have a Decafit World Champ that can scoop you up off your feet if things get real bad. And so that's a nice comfy pillow to sleep on to know that. Exactly. You got somebody that's pretty tenured in this in this avenue, which is probably what makes it a little more pressure at the same time, I suppose. Like, you don't want to have to be rescued. But if you do, meh. Yeah. Yeah. What we know is that there's going to be a few good teams there. And we also know that Rich, of all the teams that will be there, Rich is the best person and he's head and shoulders above everyone else. And he's mad. And he's mad. So he could, like, he can just carry us and we can win. But I also know that if we lose, it's not going to be because of Rich. (laughs) Probably true. (laughs) (laughs) He is head and shoulders the best one there. So if we all raced individually, he'd win by a few minutes. So if we don't win, there's only one reason why. So if there's any amount of pressure, and I don't feel really pressure, but if there was, that would be uh, that would be it, knowing that only one thing could cause us not to win, and that's me. And there's a real good chance that I can cause that to happen. And you know what? If it happens, nobody's going to care. Maybe not even you, depending. It's no. This is... Uh... Irregardless as to the result, it's the effort and and getting back out there. And you like and you like racing last minute. And this is yeah. for a very specific race like High Rocks signing up last. This is about as last minute as you want to you want to cut it. So you got all the things working for you. Yeah, and and I and I found out in these last three workouts that I'm to the point now where I'll be able to to thrash myself. There were some times in the not so distant past that I walked into a race knowing first sign of issue, I'll probably just back off. Mm-hmm. And and I know that, that, that with this race, I'll be able win, lose or draw, I'll be able to empty the tank just fine. So that's, that's kind of reassuring knowing that all I have to do is just work really hard. And Rich is going to be able to just do as much work as we need out of him. I love it. I wish they were streaming it. Maybe if somebody does end up streaming it, if your wife is there, or something on your Instagram, I'd love to love to watch. She'll be there. And I had thought about going down, but I you know, nephew's fifth birthday party. It's a big weekend over here, so big moments. Um really is. Anything else you're confused about or should we move on from that? Hey, running wise, that's it. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to um brag. I wanted to brag about myself for a second. Okay. Well, well, I was going to probably lead into your bragging with me talking about a run I saw on Strava. Oh, well, yeah. Fluff me up a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Well, Lisa and I have our our weekly ritual. We're, we're sitting there. She's planning her run. I'm getting ready to do a workout. And we basically just commiserate with each other about how bad your runs make us feel about ourselves. <laughs> really? That's makes me feel good, to be honest. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you had a Strava workout where you did your warm up. And then quarter on, quarter off, 400 meters on, 400 meters off, and then a cool down. And you got 16 miles in and averaged five minutes and 50 seconds for the entire run, counting your warm up and cool down. And that 550 pace for 16 is faster than my fastest 16 mile run I've ever done in my life by probably like 40 seconds per mile. And so we sit there and we feel really bad about our fitness. And then we go off and we run and we decide that we love you, but we don't, <laughs> we don't really like you right oh, now. That's nice. Well, this is where I want to not brag, but I want to emphasize that we're doing our best to practice what we preach on this podcast. Um, 
And on Saturday, I knew I wanted to do some speed work uh, within my long run, but not allow myself to fully recover. So a float style workout, which we're getting really dialed in on. And I feel like I'm getting very dialed in on on this as, as I'm experimenting. And I went to my watch and like I always would, I programmed in 16 by a quarter mile with a quarter mile rest. That's what I like to do. Kirk likes to go 16 reps. I'll extend my cool down. I'll get 12 to 14 miles for the day. Mission will be accomplished. And then I I just thought about our episode we recorded for Friday that said, well, if you're stuck or you, you're, you know, change your stimulus or increase the volume of workouts you typically would do uh, to maybe see if you can break through some plateaus. And I'm not necessarily plateauing, but I realized like, yeah, I always just go and do 16 by a quarter mile and I mix up the fashion uh, in which I do it, but it's still about the same amount of work. And I said, now let's do 20. So I plugged 20 into my watch. So I'm going to do 20 rounds. I'm going to do, which is 10 miles total of quality on and off. And I was like, screw that. No, I'm doing 24. I'm swinging. I'm going to. 24 by 400. I was like the classic 24 with 400 active rest at a float. And so what we had talked about, I'm like, don't talk about it if you're not going to be about it. And so I was like, screw it. This workout is dumb for me to do. And that's why I'm going to do it. And it scared me a little bit. I got eight reps in. I'm like, I have 16 reps to go. And I hit those reps with purpose. And so one, it's like when we talk about these things, we're we're attempting to do them. Either we're already doing them or, hey, I talked about it. Try to be about it. And I'll tell you what, it was great stimulus. And it felt very productive. And I was like, yeah, that was scary. But I can feel that's going to make me better than what I was comfortable with, which would have been 16 reps. And then the other thing is we had what the – Tuesday before we talked about float intervals and purposeful recovery. And I said, all right, I don't care what my fast pacing is, but I'm recovering at 630 pace, 620 to 630 pace, no matter what. So I did both at the same time and no way that's not going to make me better with how crappy and tired I felt yesterday, the day after the run, I know that caused some real damage that my body's going to recover from and be better for two weeks from now because of it. And so we're doing our best to practice what we preach over here. And I wouldn't have done that if we didn't have that conversation last week. Wow. And so for you out there listening, yeah, for you out there listening, I think rattle the cage a little bit. I did it. And maybe it's a flop or maybe it's not. And you go out and run 16 miles at 550 pace and feel pretty dang good about yourself. And so give yourself the opportunity to break through. Give yourself the opportunity to do something a little bigger or scarier um, than you typically have and, and just see what it does for you. That's all. And I was thinking of us while doing so. So that's all I wanted to brag about. Is that okay? It's a big workout. Yeah. I've done that 20 to 24 by 400 many times in my oh, you life. you have? First did that down at Campbell University. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of our cross-country workouts. We would do that and we'd get 30 to 45 seconds rest. And we did it on our cross-country course, which was a pretty hilly course. And so we would – we had all the quarters marked out and you just 400 and then you – walk around for 45 seconds and then the next one. And I always loved that workout. So I brought that into OCR with me when I wanted to get technical trail work or, or any sort of terrain work. I, back in the day, my first year prepping for Spartan worlds, I did it every other weekend. I did 20 to 24 by 400 with, I call it Spartan recovery. I would do 15 pushups, 400, 15 pushups, 30 second mm. rest, 15 jump squats, 400, 15 jump squats, 40 like second it. rest, that kind of thing. And I do 24 of those. 
and and I loved it. That's a big workout. That's a huge workout. Yeah, and I, I was running it at probably 10K pace. Yeah, but you were running six miles of quality. Of course you were running it at 10K pace while broken. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not to derail with that, but I love that workout. But my point was I've never taken, even with the active recovery, like burpees and then rest, I never rested more than 45 or 60 seconds and it was stationary. And for you to work in between, that just doubles your workout. My 24 by 400 had 24 by 400 meters worth of running. Yours had 48 by 400 meters worth of running. And that is a night and day different workout and a much bigger demand from your engine and your legs. I I guess you could argue both sides of that, considering what you're describing would be sort of compromised race specific, which very purposeful, but very much. But I only got six miles in. You suddenly add your rest in and got 12. (laughs) Just a very different workout. Yeah, and it really did. God, it's a lot of work too. It's trusting your body when you do those styles of workouts to like, you're always working and trusting that like it teaches you to surge and recover while still producing good work. And I think that's really invaluable. Trusting that your recovery, even though I'm still working, that somehow my body is ready to push again, even though my breath Mm. and my heart rate would tell me otherwise. And so that just, it's, it's becoming a powerful tool. As you, as we talked before we started recording, it's limiting my top end, meaning, you know, I hovered around five minute pace for my quality. Uh, I think I probably averaged right on five minute pace for my quality quarters, which would have been much faster if I allowed myself to rest. But when in a race, am I running faster than five minute pace rarely? So I don't know. We'll see what I do with all that. Mm-hmm. But. When I was hearing you talk about it, you reminded me of something that we didn't get to in the episode, but I think is worth adding to it. So this is like a one minute addition to last, okay. last episode, last training Tuesday. And that is that there are two ways of changing gears or paces when you're running. And only one of them is efficient. Like there's the type where you're running and then you change your form and you start working to run faster. And then the other one is where you take three or four strides to change gears and it's, it's not as noticeable. Mm-hmm. Like if they took a before and after picture in one stride versus the next, when you change gears, you would see the difference in strides. And then the other one, you would need probably like 10 or 15 pictures to gradually progress to the next one. And when you just change gears and change strides, it burns like a quarter of a match. Yeah, I agree. Or half a match. Even though you're not trying to use a match, it's not very efficient. But that 24 by 400 workout, you're you're changing gears so many times that it forces you to just start feathering the gas in and out. And that is, in and of itself, one of the most important skills to get out of that workout is that in a race, when you have to pass someone or quick get ahead before a bottleneck or anything you want to do, you can adjust by like 30 or 40 seconds per mile your pace without trying to stomp the gas down. And we didn't talk about that, but I think it was worth Mm. mentioning. Fuel efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, I think you're right with that. And the interesting thing on the other, when you're decelerating, I mean, every time Bracken, when I was decel, I keep looking down, I'm at like 615 pace. I'm like, slow down, Kirk. You need to, cause I was so caught up in like, um, not being slow because I didn't want to mess it up on that way that I was even like, mm-hmm. because I told myself I was recovering, like, okay, you're going to charge up. It's like almost like an, a mental, like 
I was faster than I needed to be, but I still felt like I was charging up because I went into this state of like relaxed running. I don't know how to explain it, but um, I learned how to actually maybe run relaxed while still running fast. It teaches you to Mm -hmm. do that, if that makes sense. You have to if you want to recover for your next rep, and that's a skill I definitely don't have or have never had because I've never worked it. Like when you're really suffering to run truly relaxed is tough. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We, we don't need to continue on any longer with that, but well, that that's important too, though. Like it puts pain, it puts fast in perspective. Like if you sat there and you had to yank a clump of hair out of your arm, you'd be like, ah, that really hurt. And then you whack yourself in the hand with a hammer and then yanked a clump of hair out. <laughs> it wouldn't cause you, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Good point. And that's kind of like that running five minute pace suddenly makes six twenty feel not so bad and that it is a reduction in effort and discomfort. And so, yeah, I can, my mind almost has permission to recover at this. Yeah. Even if it's the same amount of work as normally running at 615, 620 is that perception of reduction in intensity really matters. I didn't know where you're going with the pulling out the arm hair thing, but that makes a lot of sense. And you are right. Perspective <laughs> is power. I would never hit you with a hammer, but if I did, you'd probably be great at plucking hair out of your arm without caring. <laughs> I, I really would. Um, should we? So today we wanted to get you caught up on a little bit with what's going on with us, follow up to our episodes we had uh, recently, and then um, not a full-blown Q&A today. Um, we're going to keep you know maybe this to about a half an hour, but uh, realized here that in my cache of Q&As, the last we, – we have one from November – 30th that we have not gotten to so it's been over two months since we we have some questions sitting in here is what i'm getting at so i think uh i think we should knock a few of these out try to play a little catch up um with no rush to like move from one question to the next if we want to dwell on one we can this isn't like an official q a episode um but we thought we'd end with that uh today and we have a whole queue of uh of sweet topics we're going to get to, but I just feel guilty seeing all these Q and A's Bracken. It weighs heavy on my heart. It does. You're a communicator, Kirk. Yeah. I would say take, takes one to no one, but it's not true. Do you want me to jump right into Ross Weimer once said, I'm the worst, best communicator he ever met. That's very accurate. When we communicate, it's fantastic. But in between communications. Yeah. Ross way to go. Yeah. Get me face to face. Mm-hmm. Face-to-face, I am a very above-average communicator. Fantastic, I would say. But out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> Do you want me to roll one here? Yeah. Yeah, I'm scrolling through here. I don't have too many. Okay. Well, your wife sends them to me if she sees them first. I don't know if she sends them to you too, but um, this is from Scott Neth, all the way back from, I believe, November 30th. Sorry about that, Scott. Um, question for the next Q&A. When getting back into training after an extended period off, how indicative of lactate threshold heart rate is a 45-minute run where you average in the 180s, but your RPE is maybe a 7 out of 10, asking for a friend? So what he's saying is he's detrained for whatever reason, and he goes out and works hard, but not that hard, and he gets a really high heart rate response while still feeling like he wasn't working as hard as he could. He's confused about that. What does that mean? Well, I'm just going to assume that heart rate is accurate. I've been seeing again, Kirk, people are having issues with their heart rate monitors. 
two of uh, the most recent performances put up by athletes that I coach had very bizarre mm. heart rate numbers on it. One way too high and then the other one way too low. I don't know if it's just the season. External heart rate monitors? As opposed to... Like built into their watch. Oh, oh, oh um, I, I don't believe either are wrist-based. Um, but I don't know if it's just cold weather racing is screwing with things or what, or maybe some people just are running at the end of their battery or the life cycle of it. But assuming the heart rate's correct, I think most scientists would tell you they don't care what shape you're in. The amount of time you're working and the, your perceived exertion or your work rate, uh, will produce the same results just at a slower pace. So 45 minutes at a 7 out of 10 effort is going to tell you the same thing that 45 minutes at a 7 out of 10 effort will tell you um, when you're in great shape versus bad shape. Now, we know that there is some difference there. Your heart rate will get up faster when you're out of shape and uh, won't be quite as responsive to fluctuations in pace. But if you ran 45 minutes at a 7 out of 10 effort, then that's what it tells you. It, it it won't be your lactate threshold because you can't possibly hold lactate threshold for seven out of 10 effort for 45 minutes. Um, so it, it would just be that, I don't know, your heart rate got up a little higher than usual and maybe it's worth in a couple of weeks retesting and seeing maybe what we originally thought for a lactate threshold was a little lower than what it is. Yeah, I think he's confused because it sounds like he maybe went out and felt pretty good and in control and then he saw the data afterwards. He's like, whoa, that's a high heart rate. You know, well, when you were sitting in the 180s, did your pace deteriorate yeah. over those 45 minutes? Would tell you that you breached lactate threshold most likely, and you just didn't know it at the time. Maybe you, you had one of those lucky days, you know, on the days where I really feel good, Bracken. Sometimes I'm like warming up and moving. And this happened on Saturday, actually. My heart was in the 150s in my warm-up within three, four minutes, but I was feeling it, right? It was just like, I was feeling good. I allowed my heart rate to drift, felt good sitting there. Uh, and sometimes you can have the opposite. My heart rate's so high and I feel like crap. But I feel on those days where I click, my heart rate actually sometimes runs a little high. And I can't really put a finger on to why. But point being is you'd have to know the pacing and where that was in relation to your effort yeah. if that started to slow. But I I don't know what to tell you other than I wouldn't look too much into it. I'd be curious what's happened since, Scott, to be honest. It's been two months. What's going on now? Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. You hear interesting heart rate stories from people. There was someone once who told me, my heart rate's, my max is 195, but I held 189 for a marathon. Mm -hmm. And they have the data to show that. And so there's only two options there. First option is that your max is not what you think it is. And the second option is that your heart rate data was compromised in some way during the race. Uh, because you can't, there are certain things you can't do. Like you can outkick your coverage on fitness sometimes, but you can't outkick your heart rate coverage. Mm -hmm. Your heart rate is what it is. If you have a max of 190, you're not holding 189 for t for three hours. It's just not going to happen. That means that your max is wrong or your heart rate monitor is wrong. So it's really difficult having metrics like heart rate that we know and trust and go by when there's a chance it's wrong. It's why people just can't get away from running intervals on the track because, you know, no matter what happens, 
start and stop on your watch is always going to be the same and 400 meters is always going to be the same. Right. Like you can't fudge those metrics no matter what. Heart rate is so useful, but there's one more chance for error when you add in that device. It's confusing too. I can think of some of my worst workouts. Like I go up to do threshold type intervals and I can't get my heart rate up. I feel like heck and I've got so much fatigue in my body. I can't even get mm-hmm. it there. What does that tell you, right? But my metrics sucked along with it. My RP was high, but my heart rate never did anything from overtraining. And then the opposite can happen where it's just like you could you could spin every side of the coin and it's probably happened to all of us. And this is just one little angle that he's, that nuance that he's experiencing, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. Should we move on? Let's move right on. Josh Chase. Hey, Josh. Uh, for the next Q and A, how do you measure progress? Oh, we we alluded to this in our last episode. For the next Q and A, okay, how do you measure progress and how impactful is it? Example: I trained to be better at a 10k. My PR went from 51.30 in November to 50.55 in November a year later. It seems like a lot of work for 35 seconds of improvement. Coincidental, we just brought this up. We answered this one already, too. Do you want to uh, cliff notes it real quick? How do we quantify improvement? I mean, that would be it. 35 seconds of improvement over the course of a year. Now it's up to you to determine how valuable is that to you. We had said that to a uh, to an experienced runner. Uh, experience meaning that you've moved past uh, beginner stage and you're to the point where it's hard to drop time. 35 seconds in a year would be a godsend. He would be ecstatic mm-hmm. for that. For a new runner or a novice runner or someone who's not to the point of five, six, eight, ten years of experience, 35 seconds in a year of work might not seem worth it. So I would say you improved. But then uh, again, the question is, what did that year of training look like? I think five seconds uh, per mile is notable. For me, that would be a big jump mm-hmm. where I'm at in my development. So oh, yeah. um I don't know. I'd be curious how he feels about it now that it's sunk in. I'm not, it's so relative. It is, right? It really is. I'd say, yeah. I mean, seems like a lot of work. I've run a 10K, Kirk. I've run this 10K on the same course four different years on Thanksgiving. And one year I ran within like four seconds of what I ran a different year and was pumped because it felt better. Mm Mm-hmm. I ran the same time and felt better doing it. That was a big win for me. So what tracking improvement is really about what it means to you. Some people just feeling better doing the same thing or even slower is really rewarding. And to others, 35 seconds would be like, goodness, five seconds per mile for 12 months of work just doesn't seem worth it to me. So it's, I guess, kind of just like we talked about, no one cares, run happier. Like if you get to choose your metrics, what makes you happy, then I guess track progress on the way that makes you feel good about yourself. I <laughs> know that's not a great answer. Yeah, if it's a lifetime PR or in recent history to you and it's a second improvement, worth it in my eyes. If that's a time, Josh, you've never run before mm-hmm. in your life or at least in your current phase of life, um, oh my God, it's way worth it. We both know this. Heck yeah. You only run your best time once. It's going to end up one. You're going to run your best time once mm-hmm. every PR should be celebrated. And I, I'm guessing that is one. So on that principle alone, 
Heck yeah. You were talking the other day in an episode about how your 1500 meter time changed from your freshman year to your senior year, how big of a world of difference that was. And I was just looking, uh, because I found some old, uh, papers in my office, my senior year, my last mile I ran was 426.7 in the mile in high school. Mm Mm-hmm. And my last mile, because in college you run the 1500 meters outdoor, but my last indoor mile was at conference championships. It was 418. That's eight seconds. Eight seconds in five years. I was really, really proud of yes. that. So, and then if you look at, uh, if you look at what would we say here, my, my 800 meters, my first real year running the 800 in college, I opened up with like a one. 58.7 or something like that. In my senior year, I opened up with a 156.9. So less than two seconds difference in three and a half years of work from first race to first race. Mm-hmm. So that, that tells like, how have I progressed in this off season three straight years? And the answer was 1.8 seconds. And our coach came up to me and said, that's how you start out a year right there. And I said, yeah, I think this is going to be a big year. <laughs> and that's So 35 seconds in 12 months might not feel like a lot for you, but I went 1.8 seconds in three and a half years in three years uh-huh. and felt like things are clicking here, boys. Yeah. Um, I agree with that fully. Yeah. My, my example is 1.6 seconds in a year of training uninterrupted. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and that was well worth it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Josh, our last uh, episode that we did on Friday, I don't know if you listened, but um, it was a little blurry of an episode, a little muddy. We talked ourselves in circles, but we got our points across. Um, maybe you need to rattle your own cage, Josh. Get out of your own little box of thinking and do some bigger, crazier mm-hmm. types of workouts and training, and maybe you'll see that improvement um, rate increase. Well, that's, that's a good point because that's the other question. In 12 months, did you do like four rounds of of three-month block of very specific work to get those 35 seconds? Or do you work on base building and run some hills and drop 35 seconds? One would be a lot more rewarding than the other and encouraging. So I guess that's that other piece is, is it time to decide what stimulus needs to be addressed? Yep. Uh, next question, Sam Conowich. He's got a curiosity. He's got an itch that needs to be scratched with this question. Do y'all manscape? Oof. How do you prefer to plan it, deal with it around running and racing? No one wants razor burn on the sensitive bits. We've had plenty of poop stories. Let's talk about grooming mishaps. We don't need to talk about grooming, grooming mishaps. I've actually never had any. But I think it is kind of relevant to the running scene, keeping, keeping tidy and running. Yeah, I think that uh, hair stubble in general is the runner's enemy. Even so, like, down... We're not using video, but like down below my Adam's apple is like, I have a little bit of hair that grows down there. I can see a little shadow. My beard line stops a little above that, but it extends a little down low. And if I wear a crew neck or like a quarter zip in a cold day when I run, that irritates right there. So I have to either be freshly, like if I'm going to run a race that's below 20 degrees out and I want something up on my neck, I either have to be freshly shaven or at least two days of growth there Mm -hmm. because the in-between catches and irritates. And so you can extrapolate that anywhere you want. Armpits, groin, it doesn't matter. Anywhere you grow hair, the longer the race, the more of an issue that is. 
do you want to come in freshly cleaned or with enough growth that you know it's not a sharp, jagged edge that's going to poke and chafe? Because we've all run into chafing, and chafing in any form sucks. Mm-hmm. Is that a good PC way? The longer the effort, you got to give that a week. You got yeah, you got to give it you got to give it a week to regrow and be so it's not the chafe stage. If you're going long, for sure. Otherwise, you got to go like day of. Otherwise, there's like that two day window where you just hopefully don't have much intensity on the docket because it can it can bite you. But yeah, I don't I don't think about it much to be honest. The the night before every race, I take care of all my grooming. Hmm. I found that that keeps everything in check, but doesn't give it a chance to to mm-hmm. jump up and bite me the next day. But the real key is a really really good anti chafing ointment. Hmm. And with me, it's just. Uh, always going to be salty britches. I think I could do anything I want with that on there if I gloop that up enough. Do you always put gloop <laughs> before races that are going to be long? For any ultra, yeah. Any ultra? Yeah. Any ultra or uh, a race that's going to be hot enough the salt. and long enough that I get salt that's deposits. The, that'll get me. I'm a salty sweater. Yeah. So armpit, back of armpit is where I chafe bad in summer. And so I I'll, usually it's body glide in summer, but if I'm going to race, I would say if it's over 90 minutes, I, uh, I lube up. All right. Well, I don't feel like I have a ton to add to that other than I think I have exceptionally soft hair. You can feel it sometimes, Bracken, the hair on my head. I think it translates <laughs> everywhere else. Mm-hmm. I think it's a problem I'm lucky not to have to deal with. So there you have it. Wow. The things people need to know. You can't coach talent. You really can't. It's just there. It's not Kirk. Thank you, mom and dad. All right. Um, I like this question. Something we haven't talked about for a while, actually. This was emailed to me, so you know this gentleman is serious. Um, Blake Jenkins asks, I would love to hear your thoughts about supplements. He also says, maybe this is a podcast already, and if so, what episode? Uh, Like, should runners or OCR athletes take creatine? Should we be drinking BCAAs regularly after runs and workouts? Likewise, should we be drinking protein shakes? Are daily greens drinks worth it? What about amino acids and electrolyte drinks? The supplement industry is booming right now, and it's hard to navigate through the weeds of what is beneficial and what is not. Um, so there you go. And then he says, P.S. A couple of years ago, I thought reaching the age group podium was out of reach, but after listening to your podcast and taking what you teach and making a plan from it, I made it on podium four times this year. Awesome. Again, thank you for your podcast. That's sweet, huh? Good work. That I mean, that's the dream right there. Yeah, buddy. Why we do what we do. That's exactly it. Do you want to jump in on this with any real quick thoughts? I know this is a little more my realm, and I have a supplement sponsor. so Yeah, I do have quick thoughts, and none of them are in depth. Yeah. Uh, need is always pushed on us by the health and fitness industry, and there are very few needs, like global needs by humans in terms of supplementation. However, I don't think you can go wrong with D3, supplementing. I don't think you can go wrong with taking in protein after workouts. And especially for female athletes, I don't think you can go wrong with taking in some iron and magnesium. I just really don't think you can. I mean, you can go wrong. Yeah, you can throw your levels off, but most endurance runners, specifically female, are going to be low on their iron, uh, their iron, <laughs> iron ferritin levels. So, and probably magnesium as well. So those areas are easy to start with. This is my entire supplementation that happens every single day I take an emergency. 
I take D3, not as often as I should, and I have uh, protein after I lift or big workouts. And when I'm in a bulking phase, like for high rocks or something like that, I've done creatine. A lot of people say creatine for distance for distance runners is really good. A lot of people say it doesn't matter. I don't think it's one of those mandatory things. Some people feel a boost from it. Some don't. Some people really retain water like me. And so I don't love it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, touching on the cre- creatine thing. Um, if you're like a notably weak athlete and you actually would benefit from gaining strength, cycling creatine would be totally fine if you want to dip into the high rocks or the decasine but you're like hey i'm like a wafy runner sure put in a focus block where you're taking the protein powders after every workout and you're cycling creatine um but if you're in like a steady training phase and that's not you no it's a waste of your money it's a waste of your time that is my professional opinion unless you have a notable deficit on the strength side or that's like one key to unlocking your next level of potential is becoming stronger i think you could argue taking it otherwise i agree with you it makes you retain water Mm -hmm. makes a lot of people a little bit sleepy um i don't know if you noticed that but that's when i've taken it i'm like oh it's kind of like a lot of the time Hmm. that's interesting Mm -hmm. i would say it coincides with sleepy blocks for me but it also coincides with doubling which mm-hmm. means earlier workouts and more intense volume. So I guess I've never tried to isolate. Could that be the creatine? For me, I noticed it for sure. Um, little, with my cardio efforts, I'd feel like like sluggish kind of at times. Um, a little no, like just slightly noteworthy. Anyways, um, hmm. as far as uh, supplements go, your short list uh, really. I and I'm not. Um, just because I'm sponsored by USANA is not why I'm saying this, but they do make a, an athlete specific. It's called my health pack. It is for the athlete. You can go to USANA.com and order yourself one. They're in packets. They have everything you need and everything I'm going to mention right now would be in those. But if you're going to buy individually, um, vitamin D3 plus K2, vitamin D plus K2. You want the K because it assimilates much better when K is in conjunction with it. And you want subling, sublingual underneath the tongue. So get like the droppers. It's so cheap. You can buy like a year's worth of vitamin D for like seven bucks and it's good. So, and that's just going to help your immune system big time and cellular energy. However, D works with the metabolic processes, especially in winter, like get on that. You have no reason not to. And I guarantee yours is low, um, lower. It's, you're not going to, especially for people that live in Northern climates, Northern hemispheres. We're so pale. And then simply on top of that, yeah, a B-complex, which I've said before, just covers the gamut, helps you convert food to energy in your gut. Very important. Um, And I think a good, well-rounded multivitamin as well, just to fill the cracks in your nutrition. So I think vitamin D with K2, um, a B-complex and a multi, just for peace of mind. And those do help. They're never going to replace real food. But um, I, I I don't deal with the BCAs. I don't much for protein after my workouts i'm not trying to build or uh muscle or anything right now and i find i recover better if i have a freaking banana after my run versus protein i just need to get some my glycogen back up so um that's it for me i don't do you have anything else you want to add to that uh no not really because you covered it all i i just don't want people to think that things are mandatory it's very easily to be almost like scared or guilted into starting something that then becomes like you're hooked Mm. on it 
not necessarily because it causes an addiction, but because mentally, once I do things with it, it's hard to do things without it, even the concept of that. So I don't think there are miracle supplements out there. The ones that are miracles are generally not legal. True. And that's why they're miracles. But uh, yeah, D probably is the closest thing to a miracle supplement because it actually can change the way you feel. You can feel your health difference, I think, when you are low versus high. Same thing with iron. If you're low versus high or low versus adequate, you actually feel better life Mm -hmm. energy without it being a a performance-enhancing drug. So those are probably the two areas. Maybe the best thing you can do is get a blood panel. Go to the athlete blood test or inside tracker. Uh, and but we you know we personally know people at athlete blood test and respect what they do so that maybe that's just the single best thing you can do yeah and then you'll know i don't need anything or i need this one thing yeah if you do cramp if you seem to be a cramper we firmly believe that is because you're not obviously you're skeletally not prepared for the stimulus that you're asking of your body um, but magnesium is a good is a good um, add-in if you seem to be somebody who just runs generally tight or cramps as well. Um, take that later in the night before bed because it can help you sleep too. So um, this next one was a comment on one of my Strava uh, my workouts. On I sorry I I, I don't want to move on as long as we're asking that question before he he said electrolyte drinks. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the really popular ones. You see all these hydration multipliers or rapid hydrators or your electrolytes are out of whack and everything. So do you have feelings on electrolytes for runners? Uh, I don't. I mean, if you're heavily salting your food, which I, I'm an oversalter and I almost think all endurance athletes are oversalters. I don't know if you are or not, but mm-hmm. um, I I, oh, yeah. I don't. The only time I could see it making sense is um, where I think it could make a difference is uh, back-to-back races that are an hour or two apart maybe back-to-back days, getting done with your race, putting some of that stuff in your body just to make sure. But yeah. in my opinion, it comes down or to... ultras. Yeah, or ultras when you need it now. But other than that, I don't think so. What about you? Same thing. Yeah. I think that most people are just fine. We, in our current society, don't struggle to get salt. We don't struggle for most of the uh, electrolyte family in our diets. The only time you're low on it is when you've sweat it all out. And the only time you do that is when you do long endurance events. So if your race is going to be significantly over an hour, it's worth prepping beforehand and then during. Yep. But that's about it. That's about all I do with it is I take it for specific long races. I agree with that. Now do you want to move on? Now I'm happy. Okay. I'm glad you're happy. Well, he just mentioned it. I didn't want to let it slide. He came all this way. That's right. I just forgot. I I deleted the question already and I forgot about that part. So thank you. Classic Lisa behavior. Uh, So Craig Earnhardt on my Strava, one of my Strava workouts from a ways back. Awesome elevation gain. How do you bulletproof your downhill when you don't have a descent? This would be a good training Tuesday question. Now, I believe we've done an entire episode on this in the beginning so, Craig, go back and listen to our Training for Downhills When You Have No Downhills episode. I don't know what the exact title of it is, but it's got to be in our first couple of months, right, Bracken? Yeah, and then we did one, I want to say a year and a half ago as well, and we had Mikhail Jarillo on, and he talked about it in his interview, which was very, very uh, useful and, and eye-opening for training for hills in the gym. So those are three spots you can get your, your yeah. info from. Well, there's a fourth. 
A fourth is I did an interview with Rich Ryan on the Reinforced Running podcast a few years ago, and our sole focus of the conversation was training for downhills when you don't have access to downhills. So go look up the Reinforced Running podcast Mm -hmm. and go back. Whenever I was a guest last, we... I believe we dove into that pretty hard. So um, now I don't know if we should answer it or if we should just make Craig go back and find this. What do you think? Let's give a, let's each take 30 seconds. We each get 30. So you're on the clock in two, one, go. Find a way to create impact, mostly in the gym, especially that eccentric loading phase, jumping off of the box back to the floor. Box spring-ups, for example. Of course, your structured strength training and single-leg movements, your traditional things like lunges and squats, really focusing on the eccentric loading. Dynamic plyos. Ever put a barbell on your back and do 20 jump squats? That's going to help you get there. 30 seconds are up. That was 28, I think. Good job. All right, you handled all the gym stuff, so I'll do the uh, find alternate means outdoors. No matter where you live on this planet, you can find at least one staircase. You can find a parking garage. You can find a hotel, uh, a business that will let you use their stairs, run down stairs aggressively, mm-hmm. run down a parking garage, find anything you can find and, and do that. And then this is really dicey, but if you can't find real hills, you can add a little bit of weight. You don't want to add a lot of weight to start. Start with just like 5 to 7% of your body weight. But if you're running stair workouts, adding a little bit of weight to even just like a vest or a a full bladder of a hydration pack really adds up in terms of impact on your quads. But don't go crazy. Leave it to you to go well over 30 seconds. I went well over, you said? Yeah. I don't don't buy it. I don't buy it. That's okay. You set the rules and then didn't follow them. First time we've called that out on here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um Let's uh, do one or two more. How many you want? Two. Two more. Okay. Scott Lurg, for the next Q&A. Cross-training and heart rate metrics. Previously covered this, but can you review the heart rate discussion on different modalities? I can't get my heart rate as high while cross-training, biking or rowing, that I can running when I review hard workouts. Also, during my recovery and easy efforts, my same perceived effort yields different heart rates. 135 running feels like 117 biking and rowing. Should I lean more towards perceived effort or feel like I'm pushing it more and try to match heart rates on easy recovery specifically? Thanks, Scott. And this discussion I have a lot with some of my injured athletes or my hybrid athletes. This one comes up all the time. So this is a great question, Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one we answer every other episode, it feels like, for a good reason, because someone finds themselves in this stage of training every other episode and and wants to hear Mm -hmm. about it. So it sounds like Scott's already doing what needs to be done, is you just have to throw out your existing metrics and create new ones for each piece of equipment. Because no matter what any expert tells you, I just will fight them on the fact that you cannot just hit your same zones on everything. Because first of all, if you take impact out of the equation from running to swimming, running to biking, running to elliptical, the impact itself wears on you cardiovascularly. So you can't, you can't use that as the same. And then you take skill level. A 20-year cyclist can get his heart rate higher up and easier on the bike than you can. That's just how it works. Your legs are going to burn out before your heart rate gets up. He's the opposite. So 
Start your new zone. Start by going off perceived effort and then make a note of what that does with heart rate. And then you just kind of create your own new heart rate charts with that. And Scott, it sounds like you've done that exact thing. You know that 135 equates to 117 and that's just what you go with. You have to have a different one for every piece of equipment, but some of the equipments are going to pieces of equipment are going to be pretty similar to each other. And I'm going to argue the other side of that coin. Ooh, not disagreeing with you because I agree with you, but there's another way to look at it. Um, I believe that the metabolic stimulus needs to be that of running for you to jump back into running the best you can. And so it does take a bigger mental effort on some of these modalities to get your heart rate where it needs to go. I do agree that like, it's really tough to reach top metrics. Like when you're running like hard intervals or long threshold work, like to really get there and stay there on the bike, like a spin bike, very, very difficult. You may mentally be all out and not even be able to see those numbers. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm putting on sweatpants, I'm putting on a sweatshirt and a hood, sometimes a stocking cap for a quality assault bike effort, and I'm hammering, and I'm overheating, and my heart rate drifts, I'm cheating the system Yes. so I can get the same stimulus. And so, like, there's ways around it. Like, there's you want to get your heart rate high on that bike? Overdress. Did you ever try that? Turn the, turn the thermostat up to 85 and get to work. It sounds stupid, but it is what I do when I need to. And so... Yeah, you can argue both because you're right. There's different set points. But for me, I cheat it as much as possible to get the same stimulus. So I don't know. No, you're right. Because if you look, there are certain modalities that you can crank your heart rate to its max. Uh, Cross country skiing, assault bike, rower, uh, versa climber, Jacob's ladder. But the commonality between those is that you get to use your arms and legs. Correct. Running's primarily legs, cycling's all legs. And that's why you like you burn out your quads on the bike and you can't get up any higher. But with those other assault, skiing, versa climber, rowing, you get to put emphasis onto a different body part when one starts to fatigue. And then you can actually maybe even get your heart rate up higher. So you are correct in that regard, that if you do want to get, if heart rate response is what you're looking for, you have to find something that is that is upper body and yep. lower body combined. So thank you for filling that in because I would have missed that, but you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Or it's, Scott, it's one of those dumb things where on your recovery bike, and it's just tough to stay mentally engaged that entire time to get a heart rate response. I get it. It sucks. You put me on a spin bike mm-hmm. and make me get my heart rate up and it is like, an RP of 10 and my heart rate's at like 150. I'm like, come on. That might be the situation where you spin yeah. for two minutes and you hop off and hit something race specific, 20 burpees and get back on and just find a way to, I don't know, roll the stimulus, like multiple things into that session. I Or just be, it's totally okay the way it is though too. That's the thing. It's not, it's not bad that it's lower. It's just, I don't know. Do you, you feel frustrated with it? Do you feel like you are leaving something on the table? If your gut tells you yes, then... Maybe do what I said. And if it's telling you that's fine, then do what Bracken said. Well, and it's the difference between different types of of a purpose for a workout. You know, when I want my heart rate up, it's why I'm on the assault bike. Right. Because that baby can get you any place you want to go if you're willing to go there. Same thing. If I'm doing, uh, I I talked about doing uh, threshold intervals throughout this buildup. They were mostly on the rower and the assault bike. That rower, I can work. For three to five minutes. I was doing some some 2K time trials on the rower. I get off that and I feel like I ran an indoor mile or 5K. Mm-hmm. That gets you. I'm not going to get that on the spin bike. So it's 
That's why we have different tools for different days because on the spin bike, I use it for recovery. I'm, I don't care about metrics. I'm just moving my legs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't even care. Don't even wear a heart rate strap. But when I get to work, it's not on the spin bike usually unless it's compromised. Yeah. Although there are times intervals I can hit on there doing five minute intervals on the spin bike or 60 sixties, that'll get your legs. Mm -hmm. But steady state work. If you're not a cyclist, the skill of cycling prevents you from doing steady state work. Yeah. A lot of times those quads just go out on you before you can be forced to require the aerobic output you're looking for. Um, there'll be a couple of questions here. This is both from Nicole Byrne. Um, we'll get to both of hers and then we'll, we'll be done with this. It's lunchtime is around the corner. Yes, it is. All right. Um, also question for your next Q and a, after the release of Spartan and the future of OCR, dabbling in stadium races and now highly considering High Rocks and DECA, I'm having some trouble deciding what to prioritize for next season. How do you guys break down your season, decide which races are the A races, which are worth traveling for, and how to plan your season out based around your choice? Didn't we do a whole episode on planning your season? I think we did. But I don't know in this scope. I think what we need to hone in on with Nicole is how do you decide which are your A races? Everything else can fold around that. Yeah. So let's hone in on that one. Well, it, I mean, for us, we choose our A races by the biggest event that we think we can do the best at generally. <laughs> That's not the same for everyone. Generally, it's pick a championship or a, a regional event or a national series race or two that you think is the best chance for you to do to make the biggest splash on the biggest stage. And that's our A race. But the tricky part for what you're describing with OCR and hybrid is that let's say that's DECA, but you also want to do an ultra. Well, the ultra might have to be your A race training with DECA having all your your skill work and accessory work in there because one will get you ready for the other, but not vice versa. If you don't care about your high rocks, but you want to survive it, it almost has to be your big point of emphasis until that race is done, even though it may not carry over to your next race because certain races are just so different from each other that your A race might need to be put to the side for a while in order to survive a hybrid event. So it's very confusing when you don't have a clear point of like one form of fitness is going to keep me going throughout the whole year. That's why it's confusing. Yeah, that's why it's a valid question. And there's probably not one perfect answer to her question. Um, mm -hmm. The biggest thing I like to direct athletes to is let's look to drop the hammer or peak twice throughout each year. Having one long, beautiful, so you call it build, which ends in this perfect race in October and you work all year towards it. I fully believe you're going to leave fitness on the table by trying to do that versus, hey, I'm going to pick an A race in May and I'm going to pick an A race in November and I'm going to build hammer recover quick for a week and then get back to another build i think two cycles a year is perfect two recovery weeks or so a year perfect so the first thing you need to do is you need to look at all the events and say can i can i actually maybe have two focuses this year and segment it out what's my first half of the year focus what's my second half of the year focus maybe that'll give you some clarity because yeah. that's what i do with myself and my athletes who are a little confused it's like build peak really like point where you need a break like yeah you've earned it either through a big race or big training blocks do that twice so that'd be my starting point for you and then how do we tell you what your heart wants nicole i have no idea what moves the needle for you that's tough error on the side of training for your longest most demanding race will stand on that rock yes and train down um but other than that that's where i would start without 
getting too into the weeds. And we did. How to plan your season, we did an entire episode. It's, it's for sure we did. Maybe a year ago, about this time. So go back and look, Nicole. Probably one of our training Tuesdays. Yeah. If I had to sum it into three rules, it would be never lose the endurance needed for your longest event, the skill needed for your shortest, and the main combining engine work that tie the two together. So what I mean by that is if you're going to train for an ultra and a DECA strong, you have to have your endurance and long runs up to be able to handle the duration of your ultra. Maybe not race it at all times, but handle it. You have to have your gym work set so that you can handle the demands of the DECA strong. Maybe not be your best at it, but have those movements present all year. And then choose what is the most common thread between that, which we always believe is right around your threshold, and keep some threshold work all year. And then you can pivot to one or the other. But if you have the ends covered, then you're set. Yeah. Then you can be flexible. That's a good, those are good kind of rules to live by when making training decisions if you have a bunch of different things on your calendar. Put it on the wall. But Kirk, yours, if you only had one rule, it's be ready for your longest, most demanding race, and you can always sharpen down. That, yep. That's tried and true. Her last question, and then this will be it, guys. Um, for the Q&A, on days you have a longer run or a midweek long run scheduled, but you don't have time to do it all in one shot. Sometimes you don't have a three-hour break in a workday, smiley face. But you do have two one-and-a-half-hour breaks, for example. How much does the in- that impact your benefits or stimulus you are trying to achieve? Really good question. Really good question. I don't believe it negatively impacts you at all. The only thing you miss out on is time on feet. But there was just very recently Camille Heron, who is one of the best ultra uh, runners on the planet, uh, world record holder for 24 hours. She just came out with this thing and she's talked about this for years. She's a high volume athlete, but she doesn't do real, real long runs. She doesn't do back to backs and she doesn't go over two hours. 22 miles or something. Yeah. Yeah. But she believes in multiple efforts. And then this was linked to studies that show that your soft tissue your, uh, if you talk about your tendons, your connective tissue, things that need to be able to withstand the pounding, they regenerate and perform better if they have like four to six hours in between bouts and uh, going over two hours, they stop really reaping the benefits of that. Or after about 30 to 40 minutes, you're really helping them. And then somewhere between 90 minutes and two hours, they just start to fatigue, but they can regenerate and then do another effort. So you could do multiple long runs in a day that might be better for you than one long. Now there is an argument to every side of it, but the point is there is, there is real evidence to show that you will not be worse if you can't fit in one really big long run that you could do two 90 minute runs. And then you might be able to just keep better form for both of them, which would be beneficial. So don't feel like you're missing out. Same amount of uh, cumulative fatigue, same amount of steps and pounding and uh, weight bearing, same amount of cardiac response. Gen, I mean, we're splitting hairs, so there'd be some mild differences yeah. there. But um, yeah, is it ideal? I don't know if it's necessarily ideal. Like, if you are racing like long ultras and you are going to be on feet for five hours straight, like, of course, you're going to want to get some of those. You don't have an idea how that feels. But I agree with you from a metabolic and a structural and a resistance to impact standpoint. If that's what you're working with, work yeah. with it and don't even feel bad about it. It's okay. Yeah. I agree with you. Someone made a really good point on a thread about her, which is that most of the reason you do back-to-back long runs or really long runs 
is so that you learn how to do that. Well, she's run like 30 ultras in her life. So she doesn't need to learn that. And when she does need that stimulus, she gets it from the race. So you could get by by just plugging in two races during your buildup and then doing everything else the way that you described it or how she does it. And you probably won't miss out. You can use races as your big days and then boom, you're fine. There you have it. I'm happy with that answer. How about you? I'm very satisfied, Kirk. Okay. And it's lunchtime. And we have, oh, I don't know, still like 16 questions in here. It's like we could do a Q&A every week probably. I have 14 left, but we try to bring other things to you. And I was hoping, actually, Bracken, let's 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 talk this live for next week because we're hoping to launch our uh, running public running plan. I was going to say. Okay. The moment we stop recording here, I'm putting the finishing touches on it. Well, and then we had a question on our running public training group on Facebook asking about the implementation of compromised work and OCR-specific stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if the listeners would like us to walk. We, If you would like for us to walk you through our general sentiment and plan, the periodization of the entire year for you on a Training Tuesday episode. So you have an idea what's coming, could pique your interest, could at least help you frame your mind. If you have an interest in us, we're not going to give you all the goods, of course, the exact workouts, but we, we could walk you through our thought process for how the 2023 training plans are going to flow. If you have an interest in that, shoot us a message. Shoot me one personally on my personal page. And we will do that, I think. And if we don't get much of a response, then we won't. Think that's fair, Bracken? Let them, let them understand where things are heading this season with the training plans? Yeah. We have 49 weeks scripted out right now for the running plan. And we have, how would you look at that? 49 weeks scripted out for the OCR plan. So I'm not going to give it away, but we have, it's all in there. Uh-huh. All the quality workouts are specified. The progressions are specified. It's in there. So we could chat all this through. So without giving away the sauce specifically, for those of you who aren't on the plan, um, maybe we could or should do that, but only if there's an interest. It's something that after that question came through on the running public training page yesterday, I was like, maybe we should actually give people a heads up so they're not living in the dark. So anyways, thought I'd say that. Yeah. See if we get a response. Okay. And to, to clarify, in case it wasn't clear, there's still going to be two very, two separate training plans, one OCR training plan and one run-specific training plan. So if you're on our current training plan, that is our OCR training plan, you just stay put if that's what you want, the OCR training plan. Yes. And then the other plan will have no OCR work. It will be run-specific. So if you're on our OCR plan, our current plan, that is the OCR plan, that's what you want, you stay there. And then Bracken's talking if you want to switch to a run-only uh, plan or hop on our run only plan just to make sure i could see some confusion yes. there so there'll be no more modifying yep there'll be no more modifying of the plan based off of whether you want to be a runner only or ocr only or a bit of both if you only want road running trail running mountain whatever there's the run only plan and the one that we are currently on is the ocr plan you just stay there if the ocr plan is all you want Yep. So we'll update the verbiage on the website and put the new option. But if you want to go from the OCR plan to the running plan, you just switch. You just sign up for the new one and then message us to cancel out your old one. Now it's clear, yeah. And the run plan will be, think 5K all the way up to marathon. We're getting you ready for anything from 20 minutes in the mountains or the roads. We give you options each day to let's you know, like scale things. Like if you're on our current plan, you'll see that. 
and then also choosing race specific terrain. So it is whether you're a road runner or a trail runner or a mountain runner, um, think anything from 20 minutes to three hours, what, what we're planning, which sounds yeah. crazy, but I think we've done it. So three to four hours probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've done it. We'll have to make up. We'll actually have to post about this one on our social media bracket. So everybody yeah, we will. gets on it. Okay. What are you eating for lunch, Bracken? What's on the docket today? Oh, I don't know. We had a uh, NASCAR kickoff party yesterday, Kirk. Woo! Clash at the Coliseum kicks off the season, so we've got a lot of leftovers. Okay, so food you're too ashamed to admit to eating is what I'm understanding. Oh, there's no shame in my game. I just don't know what I'm grabbing first. And I don't know what's been picked through already. A lot of options. So, for example, this morning I ate a piece of leftover pizza and three pieces of sushi. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like the most disgusting breakfast ever. That ruins my appetite, thinking of eating it in the morning. just uh, I just want to speak to the level of class we bring to our NASCAR parties. We have sushi at our events. Mm-hmm. Did you buy it at the grocery store? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to bring <laughs> a nice sushi to a NASCAR party. <laughs> the fact that you go to a NASCAR oh, party for some reason just hits me in the right spot. And I don't oh, know is why. at our house. We host Okay, it. that's even better. Right, that's even better. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just you don't fit the profile. I know your son's into it, and that helps. But I, I just, it's just funny to me. Yeah. Nothing, I mean, I've watched it. Listen, 12 months ago, I had never watched a NASCAR race in my life. And here I am yeah. hosting a NASCAR kickoff party. The classic sushi-NASCAR combo. You know who's most into it? Lisa. Lisa. Huh. She was in and out of her seat. Multiple times in the last few laps yesterday. Amazing. It is. I like that. That also hits me just right, to be honest. Yeah, it's one of those things I didn't expect to see out of my wife when I met her, but uh-huh. it only deepens my appreciation for her. <laughs> That's fantastic. We're really happy for you guys. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have broccoli, white rice, and ground, ground organic free-range venison. That's what I'm going to have with some Frank's hot sauce on it. For sure. And I've By organic s- free-range venison, do you mean you shot this deer? In the wild, yeah. I like to, I'm like i trying to keep it hip, hipster, trend, trendy, oversell it, you know? Okay. That's what I'm going to have. Did you shoot it while wearing a mustache? Because then that's hipster. Mm, while wearing a mustache? Uh, no, but I had a beard. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like hipsters wear mustaches. They don't They don't just have a mustache. <laughs> They're wearing it. That's part true. Of a it is an accessory piece. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. And we've tanked, per usual, at the end. Shall we uh, hit the stop button here? (laughs) Good day. Thanks for listening, guys.